You're tuned in to shifthappens.media on CJLYFM, radio with a heart. My name is Jeff Pilsner. And I'm Anna Boxstrom. Shift Happens airs from 2 until 4 p.m. every Tuesday and also every Sunday from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on Kootenai Co-op Radio, CJLYFM. Podcasts of the show are also available at KootenaiCoopRadio.com and ShiftHappens.media, or you can also listen live on KootenaiCoopRadio.com. Shift Happens, affecting positive change, one shift at a time. All right, so you're listening to Shift Happens on Kootenai Co-op Radio. My name is Jeff. And I'm Anna. And in today's show, we're going to be covering some, well, heavy subject matter. And we're going to be doing more of this in the future because, again, we don't want to be all warm and fuzzy. I mean, you can't be happy all the time. (laughs) Why not? Uh Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, as we've talked about in the past, we like to address issues. And always in the end, though, we would like to provide solutions or at least make you feel warm and fuzzy. And sometimes that's possible and sometimes it isn't. But anyway, we are going to be playing an interview that wasn't even done by us. It was by Catherine McGrath and she's a programmer at the station here. And she interviewed someone that we know that lives or used to live in the New Denver community named Yusha. And she talks about her experience and her research into chemtrails. And we've talked about chemtrails a couple years ago. And it's kind of difficult for us We want to focus on the positive things in the world. And whenever you talk about things that are conspiratorial, you get labeled as a bit of a kook. But if we're not willing to use our critical thinking and be able to open our eyes to what's going on in the world around us, then we're subject to all kinds of shenanigans that can be done and are being done to we the people. And so it's important to at least share this information and leave it up to you to do your own research. That's our particular logic. Do you have anything else to add to that, Anna? No, I I think you're right. I think that the the danger in pretending that none of this stuff is going on is that at some point in the future when you're faced with reality, uh, it it can blindside you and and really send you in a spiral. So what we try to do is expose ourselves to what is going on in the world and and become aware of these problems and then focus on what we can do about it in our own lives so that we do not end up feeling suicidal or disempowered by this information. Yeah. Welcome, Yusha. Uh, let's start with you introducing yourself. So I'm, my name is Yusha Grunther. I'm 50 years old. I grew up in Nova Scotia. That was my home base. Um, and I moved to British Columbia in my early 20s. Um, I was a bit of a gypsy vagabond and exploring the world and fell in love with BC wholeheartedly. Um, since that time, I, I sort of have become 
I guess you would say I'm self-educated. I did study, did my own studies. I never went to university, but I've been interested in a lot of different subjects, um, religion, uh, societal problems. Um, I'm interested in natural healing and growth, change. Um, I've been environmentally aware. I guess you could say I've been an environmentalist um, by proxy for quite a long time. Um, I've probably spent the last 15 to 20 years in New Denver, and um, so I, that was my home base for a very long time, and I'm now probably looking at relocating to Vancouver Island. And what got you initially interested in the topic of geoengineering slash chemtrails? Well, um, I had heard about chemtrails for some years before I actually got involved in the research, but at that time I, I thought that chemtrails were kind of a fringe conspiracy theory that really only people that were a little bit wacko believed in. Um, and it wasn't until I got sick and I was laying looking out my window day after day after day and just sort of watching the skies and began to see one jet after another after another flying by. This was in New Denver. Every minute, every couple of minutes, there'd be another one going by, and they were all leaving these long white trails that kind of didn't dissipate as contrails do, condensation trails. They sort of lingered and then eventually spread out into a thick, kind of vaguely crisscrossed webby haze that covered it. You know, the morning would start out beautiful and blue, and by lunchtime it was often hazy and, and gray and kind of awful looking the skies and that made me wonder so I started to look into what could be causing that first I was curious you know is New Denver on a commercial flight route because maybe maybe they were jets that were going from Calgary to uh, Vancouver or Victoria Toronto or whatever and I learned that we weren't actually in New Denver on a commercial flight route. Um, I learned that through a resource called uh, flightradar24.com that gives you in real time where all the commercial flight routes are in the world. So when I discovered that, I thought, well, there is something weird. This, if it's not a commercial flight that I'm seeing, and I was recording about 60 jets in a six hour period on average. And I was photographing them. I, I started to document everything. I photographed everything that flew. And because I was, you know, not well, I was able to just go out during the day with my camera and I just, one after another, photographed all of them, everything. So it's all sort of documented that time, that period of time, which was about 2013. And then I decided to collect a rainwater sample after a week of really heavy, I'm going to call it chemtrail activity because I don't believe they were condensation trails. Um, so there was a week of very heavy chemtrail activity. Um, I was sort of documenting also the wind directions, so I could determine that it wasn't, whatever was coming down in the rain wasn't coming from the smelter and trail. The wind was pretty much coming from the north during that time. And so I collected the first rainwater that fell, and then I sent it off to a lab on Vancouver Island, North Island Labs, and it came back with um, extremely high levels of aluminum, cadmium, lead. There was tin and strontium in that rainwater sample. And um, I don't believe that the strontium is being left by the chemtrails. That might very well be Fukushima. I don't know. But there was strontium in the rainwater. 
And when I discovered that there was really high abnormal levels of heavy metals in the rainwater, uh, that totally fueled the flames of my research. And um, how do you know that everything in the chemtrail in the, in the rainwater wasn't from Fukushima? If you're assuming the the strontium was from Fukushima, well, I don't believe that the nuclear plants put out aluminum. Mm. Whereas there are rainwater samples that have been taken around the world and even from such pristine places as Mount Shasta in California. That was one of the most pristine water sources in the world. And there have been water samples that were tested that came back with like a thousand times the maximum allowable concentration for drinking water guidelines um, at Mount Shasta. A thousand times? A thousand times. Of, of what chemicals? Oh, of aluminum. Of aluminum. Aluminum. Aluminum, barium is also typically found in rainwater samples that other people have taken around the world. That didn't show up as extremely high in my rainwater sample, but aluminum did. Mm. Um, it was 36 times the maximum allowable concentration. Really? Of, in New Denver? Of drinking water, in drinking water guidelines, yeah. Wow. Um, so I decided to, when I came up with enough, basically I came up with enough information and and what I thought was proof um, that there is that geoengineering is actually happening that chemtrails actually are happening that I decided to send a report off to um, he was our MP at the time Alex Adamanenko and Alex Adamanenko took my report and took it seriously enough and my research to forward it on my behalf to Canada's Minister of Environment who at that time was Leona Aglakuk. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her name. And he was asking for Environment Canada to look into the really unusually high levels of heavy metals in the rainwater sample and to address my questions and concerns, um, which I, that never really, I, I can't say I got a form letter back from them. I did get a letter back saying that what I was seeing was totally normal, that there is no is that from the Minister of Environment? This is from the Minister of Environment, that there are no chemicals in... Well, let me just quote what she actually said to me. Quote, unquote, she wrote, um, there are no materials being dispersed within any contrails other than water vapor and the regular byproducts of jet fuel combustion. So... The uh, regular byproducts of jet fuel combustion. And then did you have you researched what those byproducts of jet fuel combustion are? I started to, and there you know, was like ethylene dibromide, and I can't remember what else. There were weird things in there that are also really detrimental to health, mm -hmm. but aluminum is not one of lead. Them. No, none of those things are, are, are in part jet of fuel. jet fuel jet fuel yeah. combustion. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and you say that you checked the wind uh, at the time of these rains, and you are pretty sure that this wasn't coming from from trail trail smelter. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they were not. So what I did was I would photograph. I would do a, um, so I'd go on Environment Canada's uh, weather website. It would tell you what the weather is for that day in any given area. It would tell you what the humidity is and um, various other information, wind direction, and I would so I would have that as reference. Mm -hmm. So if the wind direction was coming from the south, I, I knew it. So I knew that the wind direction in New Denver was pretty much systematically coming from the north, the north. at that time. So this you're not so you're not getting you're not getting rain 
and pollution from trail. You're, not on the it's, not it's on the day, the yeah. not in that week preceding my right. rainwater collection. And most yeah. of the times, the wind probably does come from the north. Like the north northwest is kind of a common. I think for so, wind, especially right? in the spring and winter. It seems to be the case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so then after you got the letter back from the from, Minister of Environment, right. then what was your next step? Well, I wasn't satisfied with her answer, obviously, because she didn't conduct any on-the-ground investigation into what was causing the, the chemicals in my rainwater sample. Um, I took further rainwater samples, and I tested them with little home test kits. They're not, I didn't send them off to a lab, but my little home test kits also showed that one of them showed high levels of mercury in the rainwater. So I was not satisfied with her answer and I continued my research and um, well I was going to talk about this later in the segment but to refute Environment Canada's Leona Aglokuk, I, um, I discovered after my report went out to her that Environment Canada was conducting secret behind closed doors meetings on the subject of geoengineering, um, which I think that, so let me just quote, um, da, 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 da. so that, it was a leaked memo. Um, where, that, did you, where did you find the leaked memo? Well, I found it on one of, I think I might have found it on a website called geoengineeringwatch.org. This is an excellent resource for anybody that is interested and would like to learn more about geoengineering. Okay. Um, so in this memo sent to the Deputy Minister of Defence in Canada, the Canada's Security Intelligence Service Director as was at that meeting. Um, the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs and International Trade was there, the, and the National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister. So all of these defence-oriented um, organizations were all at this secret meeting for geoengineering. Um, and where was it held? It was, I'm not sure where it was held, but it was held on July 5th in 2012. Okay. Um, I could probably find out where it was held, but I don't have that information right offhand. But at, as part of the um, presentation that they, they gave that day, um, they describe geoengineering, and this is quote again, quote unquote, geoengineering, um, the deliberate large-scale intervention in the Earth's climate system. So that was in 2012. That was just one year before she wrote me back this letter saying, there are no materials being dispersed within contrails other than water vapor um, and the regular byproducts of jet fuel combustion. And yet, also as part of this um, this meeting that was being presented, they they described, quote-unquote, the injection of sulfur aerosols directly into the stratosphere using airplanes, rockets, and balloons, etc. Um, so they were talking at least of putting sulfur aerosols into the stratosphere. Sulfur aerosols, and so did you research what they meant by sulfur aerosols? Well, as far as, no, I never did really. I think, but I think sulfur aerosols are typically associated with volcanic action um, and some pollution of, I can't remember. Yeah, I, I don't have the information on that. Okay. Um, but they talk about, so when they, when they're, they're basically, when they talk about 
they don't use the word chemtrails. If you talk about chemtrails to anyone who's involved in actually doing the chemtrails, they say, we're not doing chemtrails. Mm -hmm. They'll say, we're doing solar radiation management. We're doing stratospheric aerosol geoengineering. Mm -hmm. You talk about chemtrails, and they're going to just tell you you're full of you know what? I know. And if you look on Wikipedia, chemtrails are considered a hoax conspiracy theory. theory. If mm-hmm. you, but if you look up geoengineering, you will find tons. They talk about weather modification. Yeah. If you look up geoengineering, you'll find organizations such as um, the CFR, the Council on Foreign right. Relations. They're huge in in promoting geoengineering, and they have had you know big meetings and discussing geoengineering as possible method of. Um, saving the climate. So geoengineering is basically going to be sold to the public as a way of saving us from climate change. So it's dangerous because everyone is getting hyped up about climate change and it's a very scary subject. There, Storms are out of control. There's fires like crazy. There's storms and floods that never used to be. It's kind of huge what's happening in terms of climate change right now. Um, and what's particularly scary is that the the people or the organizations that are sort of um, responsible for chemtrails and geoengineering are the very ones that are basically giving us our climate data and that are pushing um, climate change as an anthropogenic, you know, that is basically carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases causing it. So you found some evidence Mm -hmm. in your research somewhere to suggest that there's been geoengineering going on since the 1960s at the very least. Um, I have a couple of, so these are also, these are documents that eventually became released um, under the Freedom of Information Act. Um, But NASA, back in 1967, had a paper called A Recommended National Program in Weather Modification. And that was in 1967. Back at that time, the departments that were... Well, first of all, I'll give you a couple of quotes from that document. Um, Let me see if I can find it here. They were talking about having done field field experiments were occurring over South Dakota and Arizona, as well as California, Washington, Montana... Nevada, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Wyoming, and that development of technology will be proceeding at a high pace. Um, they do actually talk about releasing chemicals through those, through these programs. Um, here's another quote. This one was made by the portion um, that was being governed by ESSA, and ESSA at that time was, they eventually became NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric administration and NOAA is basically responsible for collecting data around the world on climate and weather systems and it's being that data is being used to um, in the intergovernmental panel on climate change um, the various reports that they're putting out the fourth amendment report fifth amendment report sixth amendment report so NOAA NOAA is basically most most of the information in the IPCC is being uh, used from NOAA's data. They mm-hmm. collect it through satellite and earth stations and whatnot. Okay. Um, but what I also learned, and this is a little of an aside, um, NOAA is getting most of its data from the Department of Defense. And the Department of Defense... And this is the, uh, this is the American Department This is the American Defense. Department of Defense. The, Demar- the American Department of Defense is really hugely involved in 
the worldwide geoengineering programs that are happening. So in 1967, the Department of Defense was um, part of that recommended national program and weather modification. So was the National Science Foundation, the Federal Aviation Administration was part of it, uh, NOAA was part of it, the Department of Agriculture, and um, well, ESA is part of NOAA, um, and then NASA. NASA was the one that wrote this paper, and that was sort of um, the spearhead for that program at that time. So in any of these documents, again, mm -hmm. starting with this initial one in 1967, do they say why they want to do geoengineering? Well, I would have to do more research on that. It's, there's been a large question in the community that has been trying to expose this agenda for a long time. Some people are saying that it's to con they're wanting to control the weather so that they can control agriculture and whatnot. So if you create drought in an area, then you, br you drive the prices up on, on produce. Um, also for war making, you know, if you want to go to a country and destabilize it, you can create storms and whatnot. And if you if you think that's a far-fetched uh, statement, I'm just going to give you, um, this is a quote from the 1996 Air Force document. It's called Weather as a Force Multiplier, Owning the Weather in 2025. Is this the American Air Force? This is the U.S. Okay. Air Force. Um, they say extreme and controversial examples of weather modification, creation of made-to-order weather, large-scale climate modification, creation and or control or steering of severe storms, etc. were researched as part of this study. The weather modification applications proposed in this report range from technically proven to potentially feasible. So they're saying that control of storms is absolutely possible. And there's also um, a man by the name of Ben Livingston. He was a commander in the Air Force in the U.S. back, oh, I think in the 60s and 70s. And at that time, he was saying that they already had the technology to not stop storms in their tracks, but to control them sufficiently that like as like a hurricane like Katrina, he actually says that Hurricane Katrina, the destruction could have been reduced by ninety percent. So in my mind, and in Ben Livingston's mind and others, we're thinking that if these storms are at least being allowed to continue, and they have the technology to stop them, it's for political reasons that they're allowing such huge devastation to be caused. Right. So I'll talk about more about that later. But um, I do believe that climate change is going to be used by these various departments in the U.S. and other countries around the world, their equivalent, to impose large restrictions on the various populations. Um, it sounds far-fetched, but there are already people in the security departments in the U.S. and the government saying that climate change is the next major threat to national security. So whenever something becomes a threat to national security, the restrictions come down. So the last huge threat to national security was 9-11. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, some people may now believe that those, bombing, that those jets going through those towers 
were terrorists, but there's been a lot of proof to show that actually it was a planned event. Mm-hmm. I won't go into that. That's yeah. another conspiracy theory for another day. Yeah. But it was used strategically by the government to be able to go and invade the Middle East so that they could get control of the Middle East's oil and gas resources. So not only did they get control of the Middle East's oil and gas resources, we also now are being monitored around the clock through our um, cell phone calls, our emails are being routinely, every day, they're being, um, if not actively being read, they're being monitored. So our privacy has vanished out the window. There is no such thing as privacy anymore. According to another um, guy who is in British defense in the um, telecommunications industry, he's now retired, but he says even when your cell phones are turned off, they are still actively monitoring you. Even when they're turned off? Even when they're turned off. So when I hear threat to national security, I hear danger to the population at large. It's not, it's, it's all strategically being used. So, so climate change and the threat of climate change is the one thing around the world that all the nations can agree on. Yes, this is a major threat to national security. Yes, we need to have some serious impositions and restrictions put in. And I'm not saying that, that greenhouse gases and um, carbon dioxide aren't driving climate change, but I do mm-hmm. question how much of it actually is responsible for climate change and how much is responsible for the 50 years plus of climate and weather manipulation by the various governments around the world. Um, and it is happening so, around... Oh. So you're saying that you, you're you wondering if this weather modification that's been going on for 50 plus years, and, mm-hmm. and, and you do have documentation I have documentation, yeah. So from the first NASA document, there's, a, there's another... Um, there's one called an introduction to weather modification by the Air Weather Service, which was part of the United States Air Force. That's 1969. Then there's the 1997 document owning the weather by 2025. That's the U.S. Department of Defense. They talk about um, owning the weather by 2025, and they that, it, that's a document that it's called weather as a force multiplier, owning the weather in 2025. And where did you find that document? That was another, so that one was never a classified document. That one is, they say it's a research document. So by saying that, they can basically, um, by claiming it's research and not actively happening, they can get away with publicly putting it out at large and they don't have to take responsibility for what's happening. However, that that document was actually researched by a group called... um, Oh, what were they called? They were a Belgian environmental watchdog group. And I can't remember when they were doing this, but they hired a group of aerospace engineers to research the subject of chemtrails and whether chemtrails were actually an actual fact or just a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. So those, uh, those aerospace engineers, they never actually came out and said, yes, chemtrails are happening, but they did say, yes, there are chemicals being ejected and that this document that basically at that time they said about 50 percent of what they talked about as being merely research had actually already come to pass and they could tell that by barium like the the orders for barium um 
by the Department of Defense, these huge amounts of barium being, barium being bought. They had discovered like um, maps where they were spraying. Anyway, they actually were able to prove that yes, this spraying scheme was actually happening and it did involve chemicals, even though they didn't actually use the word chemtrails. Right. But they're also... And they could prove that it was being done by the American military. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so don't be mis sort of misled by the fact that they're saying this is a research document. It is much more than that. And in fact, in it, it says, and this also leads me, this is what was part of what led me to believe that national uh, security and climate change were going to be linked um, in a, as a way of controlling whatever it is they're going to choose to control, you know, whether it's our behavior, whether they want to curtail, um, uh, you know, corporations, emissions, I don't know what, I don't know, wherever it goes, but I do believe it's well, somehow related to the well, whole... Well, the curtailing of, corp of, of emissions from factories would be a positive thing. It and will, that's what the environment It will be a positive wants. thing. However, ah, oh God, it's so complicated. Mm -hmm. um, You're saying that there are, there's, there's other agendas. There are other agendas. Yeah, there that, are other agendas. That the environmental movement knows nothing about. Yeah, that I tend to and believe... And that the environmental cause is being... It's, used. It's being used. It's, it's being, being used. harnessed. Thank you. That's exactly what I believe. And I'll give you a couple of quotes to support that. Um, he's considered the father of the environmental movement back, I think, in the 70s. His name is Maurice Strong, and he is connected to the Rockefeller Foundation. He sits on the board of directors of the Rockefeller Foundation. Now, most people think that the Rockefeller Foundation is this mm, benign organization that gives out funds to environmental groups and various other deserving projects, and they do, but there's an agenda behind that as well. I believe, and my research and other people's research has shown that the Rockefellers are large in the... I don't, get, I don't know if you want to call it a conspiracy, but some people think there is a conspiracy to control the world's resources through eventually um, creating a, a, a one-world government body, uh, a one-world government that will be basically ruled by what they call the ruling elite. And Rockefeller himself has said... It would have, oh, and this is part of the Bilderberg. I don't know if people have heard of the Bilderberg Group, but the Rockefellers founded the Bilderberg Group. Mm -hmm. So at a Bilderberg meeting, he said, it would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we had been subjected to the lights of publicity during those years. But the world is now more sophisticated and prepared to march toward a world government. The su supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite and world bankers is surely preferable to the national auto-determination practiced in past centuries. So that was David Rockefeller saying this at a Bilderberg it's, meeting. It's preferential to auto-determination, like we we don't want mm -hmm. you guys to be deciding determining your own, stuff. your own lives. That's right, that was in 1991. So Rockefeller and Maurice Strong, this, this, this father of the environmental movement, are very closely linked. Um, Strong sits on the board of directors for Rockefeller Foundation. Rockefellers have founded... Um, so Maurice Strong basically began, through the United Nations, the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He, since then, has made millions in carbon credits. 
He made millions in the oil and gas trade. So for me, that was what raised my alarm bells. Here's、mm. an environmentalist making millions in gas and, and oil. This is Maurice Strong you're talking Maurice about. Strong. Maurice、mm-hmm. Strong.、Mm-hmm. And Maurice and Strong. And what, what year did he start the environmental movement? Or was he、uh, spearheading it, let's say? He, he began. So he was, let's see. He, okay, so he set up the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, in 1998. And that、okay. was part of the United Nations program. Although I think you could probably argue that the environmental movement has been、oh, going since, much like, before that. since Rachel Carson's book in the 1950s. I'm, yeah, I'm stating what I read online that he's considered the father. So I think he was involved in environmental issues before that time.、Huh. All I know is that in 1988, that's when he began the, the, the United Nations IPCC. Okay.、Um, And、um, so he wrote, What if a, he, I can't remember, so he wrote this. That, okay, this was part of an interview with ma- a magazine called West Magazine in 1990. He said, What if a small group of world leaders were to conclude that the principal risk to the earth comes from the actions of the rich countries? So, in order to save the planet, the group decides isn't the only hope for the planet that the industrialized civilizations collapse? Isn't it our responsibility to bring that about? This group of world leaders form a secret society to bring about an economic collapse. So that is part of the Bilderberg that, that's schematic written, that's as well. That's written in a Bilderberg document? No, this was part of an interview with West Magazine in 1990, but Maurice Strong is also part of the Bilderberg movement. Oh, and that's what he said.、Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So this is all connected, and somehow it's all, I believe it's all connected to the climate change catastrophe being largely engineered. To create not only, not only an environmental collapse of sorts, but to create also an economic collapse. So that the more destabilization there is in the world, the more this group of world leaders, whatever you want to call them,、um, the more they can kind of gather control. As Henry Kissinger said, Henry Kissinger is also part of this whole. Bilderberg schematic. Henry Kissinger was the national security advisor to at least two presidents in the past.、Mm-hmm. And Kissinger stated, let me see here, today Americans would be outraged if United Nations troops entered Los Angeles to restore order. Tomorrow they will be grateful. This is especially true if they were told that there was an outside threat from beyond, whether real or promulgated, which means created. So, a created threat that threatened our very existence. It is then that all people of the world will plead with their world leaders to deliver them from this evil. So, I really believe that climate change is going to be used for this purpose. Among other things, any destabilization they can create is going to basically, as he said here, it will make us plead for them to deliver us, to save us. Okay, so getting back to the、mm-hmm. former point in、right. my question, you have found some evidence to suggest that there's been geoengineering, weather modification going since on the since the 60s, and that this weather modification has itself contrib- contributed to the current climate crisis that, crisis that、mm-hmm. we're seeing. Yes, that is my belief and the belief of. Many others who have started to research the subject. There are scientists, biologists, doctors who, once you start to look into it, once you start to do your own research, and you don't have to take my word for any of this, I, there are some really excellent resources out there that people can do their own research. And 
geoengineeringwatch.org is a really good one. If you want to see whether the, li the lines in the sky that you're seeing, whether at that moment they're actually being caused by chemicals or by water vapor, you can go on a website hmm. called um, the Universe. So the University of Wyoming has um, a data center that they give out to their students of climatology. Hmm. Uh, oh, this is going off topic again. But basically, you can prove at any given altitude, you need to have over, you have to have over 70 to 75% humidity to create a long-lasting condensation trail mm. and minus 60 degrees Celsius or colder. And that's and, that, okay. And usually at those high altitudes, it is really up It's cold. really cold up there. Mm -hmm. You know, minus 50 degrees is normal, minus 40 degrees is normal, mm -hmm. but... To get those two conditions together is actually extremely rare. It uh -huh. rarely happens that you actually get condensation trails. How, how rare would you say? How, I mean, are there, are there <sighs> numbers on that? Well, there's a scientist. His name is Clifford Carnicum. Now, he's another good resource. He doesn't talk about chemtrails, but he's trying to... He's researching illnesses that are associated with chemtrails. Mm. And... As part of his his research, he all he says is that it is extremely rare to get those conditions. Right, and I think if you go on this University of Wyoming climate website, you can see for yourself. If you look day after day after day, what's the, what what is what is the temperature and humidity at eleven thousand meters? Mm -hmm. Eleven thousand meters is typical commercial flight altitude mm -hmm. because, for some reason, the gas mileage you get better gas mileage up there at that mm. altitude. So that's the that was kind of the data that I was looking at, was at about 11,000 meters. And as I started to go back to all the pictures that I had taken, I went back to the day, the time, and I went to that website, and none of them, mm -hmm. none of those pictures of those long white lines mm -hmm. that I took, none of them met the requirements for a condensation really? trail. Cause you could one. Because you could look at the humidity and you could look at the, the, te the, the temperature right. at that, even the temperature at that level you could look at as yeah. well. Wow. Yeah, because That's they give documented. Yeah, they give you they give you humidity, wind wind direction, um, and the temperature at I think from about 100 meters above the Earth to all the way up to something like I can't remember 30,000 meters or more. Right. So you could select what what altitude you wanted to get right. your data from. And in addition to that, um, <clears throat> I discovered another resource called uh, FlightRadar24.com, which tells you where the commercial flights are at any time. It gives you in real time. So if you see a plane going across your skies, you can go on Flight Radar 24 and see whether there is an actual commercial flight that's scheduled to cross your skies at that time. If there's nothing flying across your skies on that, on that, you know, you can, they show you a map basically, and then they show you a little icon of a, of a jet and they'll tell you what that jet is, where it's going, where it's mm -hmm. coming from, where, when it's estimated time of arrival is, even what altitude it's flying. So it'll give you all that information. And if that information isn't there, then what you're seeing isn't a commercial flight. You're seeing a military jet or something else. Something else. And so were you ever able to find out what these flights were? Is there any way you can find out? You well, know? you know, so what I was doing for time was I would see a jet. I would run inside and get onto my computer, check it out on Flight Radar 24. I checked about 80 planes in New Denver in 2013. Um, just after my report went out. So it wasn't part of my report to Alex Adamanenko, unfortunately. 
But what I discovered was that none of those jets were registered on FlightRadar24.com. Not one. And, and then I gave up. And that. so, and that and that site doesn't just it registers. Um, It'll tell private you, jets private as well jets as, as well. commercial. Yes. So they're not privately registered. They're not commercially That's registered. Right. So there's something else. So, but in military jets don't have to register. On they that. don't have to register. Okay. Yeah. So, and then I was, so that led me to think, well, gee, you know, it seems strange. Like, I, I found it hard to believe that Canada would allow U.S. military to, um, to spray our skies. But I discovered that there was actually, I can't remember when this was, and I'm, I'm afraid I don't, I don't have that information to hand. I'm not as prepared for this interview as I would have liked to have been. But there was a tripart tripartite agreement between Canada, the U.S., and Britain. I believe that was in the 1990s, but I could be wrong. But at that time, it was a, a, a spraying scheme that allowed um, biological agents and chemicals to be dispersed over various populations. And that was a legal binding document of some kind. And I, I can't remember what it was called, but it, tripartite agreement and then the three nations that was part of the title of that agreement. Right. So I know that that was happening at least in the 90s. And that's um, biological agents as well. As well. Mm -hmm. And so what's the purpose of the biological agents? Did you get any, find any information on that? Uh, I believe that what's happening is that to, to some degree that some of the stuff is being tested. So you're using us as guinea pigs mm -hmm. possibly. And there, there is documentation of that having happened in the past. There, I, there is. And in fact, there's a bill in the U.S. Anyway, I don't know about Canada. I assume there's something similar. But um, in, let's see, 1977, they passed a bill. It's called Public Law of the United States, Law 95 to, to 79, Title 8, Section 808, Etc. Um, Etc. Et it says, "quote unquote," the Secretary of Defense may conduct tests and experiments involving the use of chemical and biological agents on civilian populations. Public law of the United States. And from what year? That was 1977. They really. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, and unfortunately. So many of these operations are being conducted behind the curtain of black operations, which means that you are not allowed to have access to any of that information, even under Freedom of Information Acts. It's completely hidden from, from the general public, and it's completely hidden from probably most, even within government. It's just unaccessible, black operations, and, and they're allowed to do that legally for national security purposes, now, of course. Now, what about Canada? Canada's laws. Do we have right? Um, so Canada, I don't know as much about Canada's laws, but when I found that Environment Canada leaked mem memo on on geoengineering, I have to assume that there is something happening either directly with Canada's military or through the explicit consent with the military in the U.S. Right. and NASA. Um, we do have a number of um, connections militarily um, that connect us to the U.S. So there's the government of Canada's CCC, the Canadian Commercial Corporation, which um, basically we share like a billion in contracts for goods and services where our Canadian companies deliver to the U.S. Department of Defense various services and equipment needed. 
and that was found, I think, on the NASA website and the CCC website. Um, so it's a trade agreement of sorts or an existing partnership arrangement. They, they call it a pre-existing partnership arrangement. So um, it, it's between the Department of Defense Production in Canada and the U.S. Departments of the Army, Navy, and Air Force. Then there's um, the defense, the U.S. Defense Production Sharing Agreement with Canada. That was signed in 1956. So for sharing defense from 1956, you have to assume since the U.S. defense is conducting, um, you know, a national program and weather modification, that was the, the NASA document I mentioned earlier, that somehow that's bleeding over into Canada in some way, shape, or form. Then there's NATIBO, which is the North American Technology and Industrial Base Organization. And in its mission statement, it says, in support of North American national security, the Natibo facilitates technology and industrial base efforts between the U.S. and Canadian defense departments. So there's that. And then there's NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, um, which is a U.S.-Canada joint military command, and that was also created in 1957. So given that we have all these defense sharing agreements, hmm. it's all, it seems to be all one thing now. Right. Right. So what's happening in our skies, what's happening in over U.S. skies, it's all connected. Right. Yes, I can remember um, being a, a child in the 70s mm -hmm. and um, look, always looking up, you know, Saskatchewan, South Saskatchewan, beautiful, beautiful deep blue skies. skies. And you deep blue skies. Yes, and you just looked up and you'd watch the planes with the contrails and the contrails would always, you know, they'd be out there. They'd, but, they'd, but they would they'd, vanish. They'd vanish. Yeah. I, I never had seen a chemtrail in my life. Like one of these trails, like you would describe, that like it stays and then it spreads out with yeah. spider webby. And then yeah. there's a whole bunch of them crisscrossing yeah. around. And then there's haze. I had never seen that until living in Nelson. And I think it was in like, started maybe around in 2005 or four or yeah. somewhere in there. Yeah. And, um, and you rarely ever see those deep blue skies we used to have like young people today probably don't even know what a truly pristine blue sky looks like well i thought you know actually you know? i believe that this summer i that i didn't there was i think we had a reprieve from them this i summer. think we did too actually and then i noticed them happening yeah. in the last uh like around the end of august yeah. again uh, yeah. they, they started up again and then it's interesting too because around that time everybody was there's a bunch of viruses that were going around yeah. just right around just after i looked up at pulpit rock i was and i saw these chemtrails and it's like the next thing i know people are coming down with this respiratory thing yeah and, then and there have been actually in a number of the rainwater tests that people have done around the world and in the u.s and various parts of canada they have found biological strange biological agents in some of those rainwater samples. Yeah, and but you didn't find, did you? Oh, you, uh, didn't, you didn't. I test didn't test for, for that. You didn't test. For I only that. tested for chemicals. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you. Haven't... But it would be something that anybody could do. All you have to do is, you know, wait for a, a week of heavy activity when you see lots of white lines in the sky. Mm -hmm. Make sure you take your rainwater sample well above ground, so they can't say that aluminum came poofed up in the dust or something, because there mm -hmm. is aluminum in the earth. Yeah. So you want to get your rainwater sample high enough off ground, I don't know, a dozen feet at least, up off ground, and collect your rainwater and have it tested for all of this stuff, biological and chemical. Right. 
And when you tested it, where did you send it off to? Uh, it went to North Island Labs on Vancouver Island. Okay. Yeah. I wonder if that, that same lab could test for both biological and chemical, or if you have to send they it to two different could. labs. They could. I assume they could because most people use them to, t to test their wells, you know, the water in their wells or whatever, right? right. So they want to make sure there's nothing that can make you sick. Were the people and at the lab surprised when they at what the results? Or I have don't... no idea. They just I just got back a formal report saying mm. this water does not meet drinking water guidelines, okay. and then they outlined um, which chemicals had higher amounts um, than than was safe to drink. Right. So people around here don't be drinking rainwater. I know, I know. People <laughs> say, "Oh, I collect my rainwater and we use it to water our plants and we drink it," and I'm going, "Wow." That stuff is more toxic than probably even what you would get in city drinking water. Yeah, and then the, and the sad thing is that's going into our lakes. It's our... going into everything. You know, oh, here's another interesting quote. This is a quote by NASA as part of that 1967 document. Um, let me see if I can find it. Um, okay. So yeah, this is from the recommended national program in weather modification, which was written by NASA, and which involved about seven or eight national. Def some there was a number of um, defense agencies that were involved in that in the 1960s, including NASA, including the Department of Defense, including the National Science Foundation and the Federal Aviation Administration. Oh, sorry, Federal Aviation Agency. Anyway, NASA wrote in that document that quote-unquote, living things are adapted to the weather that actually prevails, and any change in that weather will be generally deleterious to them. So, so this is just talking about weather. Forget the chemicals. Mm -hmm. This is just the weather. Repeated operations on the scale mentioned are likely to have far-reaching biological consequences. Some of the biological changes would not be reversible. So this was NASA writing this in 1966. And... So they were, and they were writing about gen geoengineering. Is that what and they, they were talking? Well, about? they were talking about weather modification. Weather Back modification. then, it was called weather, weather modification. modification. And, but okay, they do talk. Like I said before, um, it says, "quote unquote," various other nucleating agents as part of the weather modification strategies. It says, various other nucleating agents such as lead oxide will be investigated. So that was 1966. I did find lead in my rainwater sample. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, oh, and it says experimental seating operations, quote unquote, again, will be underway primarily by aircraft. Oh, will be underway primarily by aircraft. And that yeah. was in a document in 1966 yeah. put out by the NASA. NASA. Yep. Yeah. Oh, okay, well there we have it. So there is there is a ton, and if you go on the geoengineeringwatch.org website, they have all of these government documents and more. They have tons of them, like that you can download as PDFs. The actual um, released documents under Freedom of Information, they have them all on their website. Right. And weather, like they also have the rainwater tests and the results on that website. Um, it'll just it'll tell you what geoengineering actually involves, what solar radiation actually means, what stratospheric aerosol geoengineering actually means, etc., etc. etc. Yeah. And so now, just getting back to the beginning of mm -hmm. the interview, you sent off a rainwater um, analysis to the Minister of Environment. Did you send anything else out to, off to um, the Canadian government? Yeah. So, um, well, my report ended up being hundreds of pages long. Uh, there were 
probably about a hundred of my photographs of the trails that I was seeing photographed with the information of, um, actually at that time, I don't think I had had that information to hand yet, but so later I was able to go back and research, did it meet the actual climate specifications to create a condensation trail, whether it was minus 60 degrees Celsius and over 70% humidity or not, et cetera, et cetera. So I had tons of my photographs. Um, I have one section of my, um, let's see, I wrote down, actually I did the research on what actually is caused, you know, what the different symptoms are that are experienced by people around the world after they've seen chemtrails. Um, been exposed to them. So there was all the, I did all the research on the symptoms. Um, let me see if I can find some of that info. I have the Case Orange, uh, the Case Orange executive summary that was put out by the aerospace engineers for that Belgian watchdog, environment watchdog group on, you know, they were researching that 1997 military document owning the weather in 2025 to see whether it was just a research document or whether it was actually like a timeline of, mm. of, an, of actual activity, mm-hmm. which they discovered at least 50% of it at least 10 years ago, 50% of, it, 50% of what was outlined in, in that government document has already come to pass. So much more since then, I'm sure. Um, so I sent him my rainwater lab sample. Uh, where is that? Can you just off the top of your head tell us um, what some of the symptoms are of, uh, uh, from chemtrails? God, unfortunately, my memory, my memory is really bad. I have had... Um, I think I probably have experienced quite a few of those symptoms from those chemtrails and, and brain fog and, and memory loss is one of them. Like aluminum, aluminum already is well implicated in, in mind problems such as attention deficit or, um, Alzheimer's, um, your memory seems pretty good. <laughs> well, I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time, so I do yeah. have... Oh, okay, here we go. Okay. So the general chemtrail illness symptoms, this is... I think I got this off the geoengineeringwatch.org website. Um, uh, so it, so a, a metallic taste, sinus problems, nosebleeds, hacking cough, asthma-like symptoms, flu-like symptoms, headaches, dizziness, tiredness, memory problems... Difficulty thinking, depression, irritability, dry skin rashes, gastrointestinal stress, and diarrhea are all sort of general symptoms that people have recorded after seeing chemtrails. Um, and who collected that information? Do you know? I think I think, like I said, I think I got this information off geoengineeringwatch.org. Oh, okay. Yeah, and another another part of the problem with the whole. Um, Chemtrail stratospheric aerosol geoengineering uh, program is that they're now using nano-sized particles. So nano-sized particles are so tiny that they actually they cross the blood-brain barrier. They go right into your skin. You can put nano like I saw on YouTube. They had some kind of nano-sized particulate, a glob of something that was nano-sized particles, and they put it on their finger, and it vanished into their skin. Like it just absorbs right into you. So you breathe that stuff in, it goes right into your bloodstream, it goes right into your brain. So it is no small thing. Um, no. But, I mean, asthma, asthma is like on the rise. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease 
it's become like practically epidemic proportions. Um, and people are going, oh, well, it's because people are smoking more, but it's not the case. People are smoking, smoking less, less than ever before. Less. Um, yeah, like I read somewhere, I think there was a headline that said COPD, increasing global health epidemic. Uh-huh. And gastrointestinal problems are also yeah. a health epidemic, a silent yeah. epidemic. Yeah. Um, so all these heavy metals, it goes right into our food chain. We're eating it. We're breathing it. It's in our drinking water. It's everywhere. Yeah. And if this has been going on since the 1960s, 60s. the burden that's being put on our planet is, it's practically, you can't, I don't even know where you would begin to try to measure it. But one thing I do know is that this information really needs to be included in any, any studies that are being done on climate change. This information needs to be at least included and as part of what is driving climate change and what is driving extreme weather and storm events. Because, I mean, there are scientists that are saying weather and extreme storms, that they can't even really link it to climate change. There's no, uh, like they're using these extreme weather events to kind of scare us into believing that climate change is, is going to be a major detriment to, to society. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, you, I think you mentioned earlier that you were looking at some lightning that you were seeing happening this yes. summer in the Nelson area. And yes. that, that lightning to occur... There has to be a certain amount of humidity in the air for not that? for lightning to occur for storms for storms for, for to storms occur. to occur there need for for any for any cloud to form you need to have over seventy percent humidity mm -hmm. for to to create a cloud or to create a long lasting condensation trail. So there was at one point during the summer that I was doing all this research in twenty thirteen I was I was seeing storms that were blowing up out of the blue on days where the humidity, according to Environment Canada's website, um, which I was going on to check what the conditions were, mm -hmm. they were saying that the conditions for New Denver were 28% humidity, 33% humidity, and I was seeing storms, big thunderstorms happening, and then huge lightning storm, lightning come down, right. dry lightning. That, that summer there were huge fires all around yeah. the Valhallas. Yeah. So... That put my, you know, that was suspicious to me. Suspicious. Like, if there are storms forming on low humidity days, that is not natural. That's not normal. And, in fact, part of my research discovered that the department, this is the U.S. Department of Defense again, but they had a, a section in their budget that was asking for money in 2013 for lightning research, lightning propagation. I don't have the information with me, so I can't quote it, and my memory's not good enough to remember all of that information. But they were looking at, at accelerating lightning strikes and being able to direct lightning strikes where it actually will hit and land. This was a, a document this, saying that they were yes. capable of doing this. Yes. Sort of thing. And that document came from whom? This came from the U.S. Department of Defense. I think you could probably... I'm not sure if you can find it on their website, and I don't remember where I got that information, but it was an actual PDF. It was one of these under, you know, released under the Freedom of Information Act uh -huh. documents. Uh -huh. Probably it's found on geoengineeringwatch.org, yeah. but I can't remember now for sure. That's where I got it. Uh -huh. So you have the U.S. military creating storms, or at least, at least they're experimenting with creating storms uh -huh. or accelerating storms. They do have the capacity to diminish storms, hurricanes, and tornadoes, but they're obviously choosing not to, at the very least. 
I certainly didn't with Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, and then you have like uh, in, in that do 1997 document, um, this is also the U.S. Military of Defense um, owning the weather by 2025. Um, they say extreme and controversial examples of weather modification, creation of made-to-order weather, large-scale climate modification, creation and or control or steering of severe storms, etc. were researched as part of this study. That was 1997. They also said in that document, the weather modification applications proposed in this report range from technically proven to potentially feasible. So, in 1997, we know that some of the some of this technology had already been experimented on enough that they know that it's they're able to use it, which means that they've been experimenting somewhere in the world, probably who knows where, any everywhere and anywhere. Well, it's interesting that they had that crazy drought in California. I know. And when they kept and the weather people kept talking about the extremely resilient ridge that was keeping the rain from the east going into yeah. the west. And yeah, and then there's the firefighters who are saying, I've never seen fires like this ever in my life. They're saying the, explos the absolute explosive intensity. They, they say, we've never seen anything like it. Yeah. So it is, even it, they don't, these people who are saying those things, they don't know about geoengineering. They don't know what's happening. Yeah. So they're just going, wow, like this is really bizarre. But it's suspicious. It's but, unusual. Yeah, but here, here are a number of patents. I'll just give you the, the names of these patents, and people can research them on their own if they'd like. Here's, I won't give you the numbers because they're simply too long, but there's one U.S. patent called, which is um, a method for controlling hurricanes. There's another patent. This is. Um, you have to give us the patent numbers. I could, but people have to be ready with their. It's long. They're like ten-digit numbers. Okay. Okay. okay They're okay. long All numbers. Right. Yeah. Here's another one invented, which is associated with the harp antenna in Alaska. Um, it's called cosmic particle ignition of artificially ionized plasma patterns in the atmosphere. That describes quote-unquote manipulation of the steering winds that control the development of mesocyclones or the modification of the directions of jet streams that influence the development of hurricanes. Okay. Possible defense applications include a method of accelerating electrons to MEV energies in conjunction with the harp antenna. There's another patent, I won't give you the number, 20 million something or something or other. It describes a way to create artificial tornadoes. Hmm. Another patent describes and this is, uh, quote-unquote, method and apparatus for altering a region in the Earth's atmosphere, ionosphere, and or magnetosphere. Um, here's another patent that talks about uh, using telecommunications, weather control, lightning prevention, and atmospheric heating, which they say is capable with a system such as HARP. Um, and then, last but not least, Gordon J.F. MacDonald. He was the chairman on the ICAS Select Panel on Weather and Climate Modification. He said, or actually, no, I don't have quotes for this, but he describes the use of weather manipulation, climate modification, earthquake engineering, and brainwave manipulation using the planet's energy fields. And he wrote about that in a book called Unless Peace Comes. Actually, no, that was Zbigniew Brzezinski's book, sorry. Mm. Zbigniew Brzezinski was also a national security advisor to one or two presidents in the US. And um, he quotes Gordon J.F. MacDonald, who I believe was a military commander of some kind okay. in the US Department of Defense.
So there's lots of patents out there for weather, weather modification, storm production. Yes. And he's, um, yes. The technology's there. It's been created. The it's technology's there. And, and in fact, Zbigniew Brzezinski goes on to say, technology will make, and this was back in the 70s, technology will make available to the leaders of major nations techniques for conducting secret warfare of which only a bare minimum of the security forces need be appraised, let alone the general public. Techniques of weather modification could be employed to produce prolonged periods of drought or storm. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Yusha. And yeah. um... for what it's worth, I really, really encourage people to go and do their own research and just and. And look at the sky. And look at the sky. Don't just be looking at your iPods and your iPads and your laptops like your Blackberries. Look at what's happening. Look up. Yeah. Look up. Sheep, look up. Okay, on that note, thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much for letting me talk about this on your program. I okay. really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You're in the middle of another episode of ShiftHappens.media on CJLYFM, Radio with a Heart. Shift Happens airs from 2 until 4 p.m. every Tuesday and also every Sunday from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on Kootenai Co-op Radio, CJLY-FM. All right, that was Rush playing Vapor Trails. I thought that was a very appropriate tune to play. And so coming up next is a conversation that we had with Catherine McGrath she had requested that we play this interview that she did with Yusha, and we, we wanted to get some impressions from her on whether she had actually believed in vapor trails beforehand and whether Yusha's interview had changed her mind about that or, or reinforced her existing beliefs. And we also wanted to get a sense of how she was feeling after having confronted this issue. Mm-hmm. So we'll play it right now. Okay, so we're talking with Catherine McGrath, who was the one that originally interviewed Yusha, and we just wanted to ask Catherine, first of all, did you believe in chemtrails before you met up with Yusha? Yes, I did. And the reason why I ended up interviewing Yusha was that I, I met her at um, Cowan's Coffee Center. She she was um, recopying her... Um, report that she had sent in 2013 to the Canadian government, and I was copying some music for some class I was teaching, and I just looked over and I saw what she had there on the table, and I went, holy, this is, wow, this is interesting, and I just immediately started talking to her, because I've um, been listening to interviews and documentaries on chemtrails um, for years on the internet, and um, I didn't originally believe in chemtrails. I remember um, at the very beginning, it was around 2002 in Nelson, there was a a man in town, and I I think a lot of people thought he was crazy, but he would have signs out in front of his house saying, get rid of the chemtrails and no more chemtrails, and it's like, what, is this guy crazy? What is this, these things in the sky, this isn't real? And then over the years, more and more evidence, and then you look up, and then you just see them. Just look up into the sky, and you can just see the thing is going across, and you see the haze, like, oh, yep, they've wrecked our sunshine for another day here, until they need it, and oftentimes it'll just burn off, but sometimes it's like, ah, the middle of the day, you want sunshine, and it's like, ah, oh, you got haze. So anyway, so, so when I talked 
when I saw that Yusha was doing research on this, I was like, wow, this would be great to do an interview with her. And so we just set up an interview. And, and then I heard her story, and it's like, holy cow, like she's been so thorough in her research. And it's very interesting, too, that she did this research locally up in New Denver. And, um, you know, I've, I've never seen, I've never met anybody locally who's done this research. Usually it's somebody off in California or something like that. And right. so, yeah, it, ha- it has had an impact on, um, you know, making me even more convinced that for sure there's something going on, right? And it's, it's, um, it's really kind of rather mind-boggling that it's this big secret and that, you know, it's like, why, why can't they just come out in the open and just say they're doing this and not, you know, it's just, yeah, it's all very strange. It is very strange. Um, so having had that kind of wake up call and realizing that this is going on, and as Yusha suggested, the Canadian government is complicit in allowing this to happen. Did that sort of change your view of the world? Did it make you feel more paranoid or distrust perhaps the powers that be? Well, I would say that, I guess I have to say no. Um, I think that in my life, I've I've thought that the world has been quite horribly corrupt since the age of um, 23. Um, So at at this point in, in my life, I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, yay, everybody is waking up to what I knew in my early 20s, and it's becoming more and more obvious, and actually, in a sense, this is a good thing because it means that we can kind of wake up and, and throw off the chains that are bind us and keep us in this, you know, kind of like in the matrix, right? Like, people are, you know, it, all it takes is for people just to become aware. Like, I, I don't think that there's any kind of big revolution. I mean, no, I shouldn't say revolution. There's no, like giant action per se that needs to happen other than simple awareness and then when the awareness occurs the action just follows naturally you know and so that so that education is is and awareness is the first thing so you know there's still people out there that don't believe 9-11 was an inside job and they think it's a big conspiracy thing it's like there's all this work to be done for for people to just wake up it's almost like the hundred monkey thing when enough people wake up and 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 see that that, that there there is, uh, you know, a, a concerted effort out there to keep people ignorant and to keep them um, dumbed down and to keep them controlled and keep, to keep them exploited, then it's gonna it's, it's gonna stop. I mean, it, it, you know, that, that people will just naturally take the actions that are required. It, it, you know, the next step will just become apparent. And and I don't think that, like, I almost don't blame anybody for doing what they're doing. I just think that everything that, that happens is just, I guess this is the point I've come to in my life, the, the change is happening in me is that it's not like I'm angry. It, but it's like, oh, yeah, no, we're just like, it's like, it, you know, it's like a, a sandbox with kids. And there's kids in the sandbox that are bullies that are like hitting the other kids over the heads with their Tonka trucks. And, and you know, they're just, and, and, and like, they're just children, and they're ignorant, and but they're powerful children, you know. Yeah. Who are, and, and and it's like it's not like we have to be angry at them. We just have to realize that it's just people do dumb things out of ignorance and fear, and um, they haven't wake, woken up yet themselves. And maybe they their consciousness will be affected by our consciousness. 
And, and, and rather than to hit them with hatred and anger and fear, we need to go, okay, you're caught in ignorance. You're caught, you're caught on that Buddhist wheel of ignorance, fear, and desire, right? Right? right. And, you, and everybody needs to rise above that. And, and when everybody does, consciousness shifts. I think that's a really good perspective, Catherine. Yeah. I, I feel similarly. Uh, yeah, and, and and the hardest thing to do, like I think it's actually sort of easier to do it on a on a, a political level. I think the hardest thing to, to do is in, is in your personal life, and yeah. but it has to happen on the personal level too, as well as the political. And that's why we do our show. It's precisely about that changes in our own individual lives and the pebble in the pond right it has a big impact on the rest of the world but we have to make the shifts ourselves baby steps yes yeah yes and it and it also doesn't mean like when people sometimes think that you either are going to be spiritual or you're going to be political and i i disagree i think you can be both but when you're doing your political work um you need to be polite uh, you need to be polite yeah I think that, I mean, everything we do, it just sounds trite, but everything we do has to come from a place of love or it's doomed to failure. Yeah. I mean, if we really want to change the way that the bullies behave, we have to deal with them with love too. That's the only way we're going to heal the situation. Yeah. And it's like, if you, it, it, it's like if we really treated each other like we are all just children, you know, because yeah. when you when you see a children doing wacko crazy things, you, you know, like you don't like you know, you know you treat them with some concern and some respect and some kindness and love and maybe they need to be sent to their room for a little bit, but hopefully you'll do it in a you know a, a you know a kind way. Yeah, you won't beat them. Um, the same thing with adults. It's like think of them as just out of line children that need just you know they need some help. Unfortunately, spiritually, I think they are children. Yeah, well, they are when you have the situation with a president who is very much a child yes but the impact that it has on millions of people and all of our potential reality is really huge and so yeah it's a a very interesting time in which we live i i think personally that one of the key things is to be willing to open your eyes and see the reality of the situation and not pretend like these people are mature adults, but to recognize their behavior needs to be stopped and it's up to us to stop it. And that doesn't mean violence and rioting, et cetera, et cetera, but it does mean being willing at times to participate in civil disobedience, that sort of thing. If unjust rules, okay, situation in point, sending a bunch of troops down to the border. Oh, right. Yeah. The, those troops are individuals with a conscience. If they are prepared to um, violate their own morals and ethics in order to do what the president asks, then we have lost. But if they are prepared to stand up for what's right, he can order whatever he wants. And it's not going to do it. It's not going to happen. And that's why I think education, like, is the revolution. That um, just getting the word out there. And I think, I think that we're living in a really interesting time right now um, with the um, internet communication. It really is a revolution in in me. 
right? Yeah. Like if it's time, like for instance, um, this interview we're doing right now, this is part of the revolution because um, people never, the average person never had access to the production of um, media. Yeah. And, and, and news before, and now people can just think you can you can start put something up on anybody can put something up on Facebook and it can go viral. And if you put messages of love and hope and and also calling people, you know, calling out bad behavior and bad politics and um, that's that spreads. And, you know, the average soldier down there maybe starts reading stuff, you know, and, and, and changes his mind or her mind. It's this is kind of like it's interesting because Aquarius is um, is we're supposed to be entering in the age of Aquarius, and Aquarius is ruled by Uranus, which rules electronic communications, and it also rules group activities. So it's like the internet is the big thing of the age of Aquarius. It's this um, this communication device that allows everybody to get involved in the spread of information, the spread of ideas, and in organizing, and it's done through this Uranian um, electronic channel, right? Right. Yeah, and it's, I just think it's really exciting. I don't know if you've ever read the book uh, Ursula Le Guin's Always Coming Home. Uh, it was a book that came out in the 1980s, I think, and she, she had this future culture in which people had gone back to the earth and back to the land, and they were, you know, very land-based, but they also had this communication device that involved computers. And she wrote this book before the invention of the internet or maybe the internet was being used uh, at very secret military levels but it hadn't actually come out right for the populace right and i thought wow like wouldn't that be wonderful if we could have you know a society like that where we did become you know more earth-centered you know small horticultural groups um bioregions and we still had this amazing internet for community communicating with each other and spreading information globally and sharing ideas and information and organizing and such. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, here's here's open. Well, it sounds to me like the things that we are discussing with you are the seed for another interview. <laughs> oh, yeah. Would you be open to doing an interview oh, in totally. the near future? Yeah. Cool. Sounds good. Well, we should wrap this up. Thanks very much for uh, adding your perspective. And we will also be in touch with Yusha about where she's at right now. Okay, thank you so much, Jeff and Anna. You're more than welcome. Thank you, Catherine McGrath. Okay. All right, so that was The Fifth Dimension playing Aquarius, Let the Sun Shine In. I thought that was an appropriate tune. And for those of you who don't know, I'm an Aquarian myself. Ooh-ha. As he says, the closest thing to God while still being human. At least I didn't say it. <laughs> anyway, so we did touch base with Yusha, and I wanted to share what she had to say. I didn't record that conversation, um, but she did give me permission to share where she's at right now. My question to her was, how has this affected you as a, as a person? Has it helped you to be a more loving, more proactive person in this life experience? Or has it um, affected you negatively? And Yusha shared with me that it has been a challenge that while she felt a responsibility to uh, share her findings and try to communicate what she had learned to the rest of the world, um, it also was difficult for her to maintain a, 
positive mindset after having immersed herself in this, the depth of this information. So she's at a point right now where she's trying to basically come back to herself to integrate this information and yet focus on what she wants to create in the world instead of continuing to focus on this negative reality. And you and I have been in that particular set of shoes many times in our lives, right? Yeah, it's a real balancing act to be willing to look at the Open negative stuff that is going on in the world and yeah. yet not be lost in it. And and that really is the danger is can we can we find that place? And and I think each of us has to find that balance independently. We have to decide how much can we immerse ourselves in the negative reality around us uh, and still maintain our balance and still maintain our focus on uh, healing and mm -hmm. love and and creating a positive reality for ourselves and our immediate. Because if we stick our head in the sand all the time, then you get blindsided by the craziness that's going on in the world and there is a lot of craziness going on. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a solution to be a hermit and to completely mm -hmm. cut yourself off from what's happening in the larger world. I think we do have to, in some ways, process the information, mm -hmm. but we have to limit that to, as I said, I think each of us has different levels of capacity to process that and still be able to maintain a positive outlook. Mm -hmm. So thank you. For listening to the show, all of you out there in Radio Land. And I'd like to thank Catherine McGrath and yes. Yusha for this information. For having the courage. courage to dig in and open her eyes and her willingness to share. So, yeah, we tip our hat to you. So we're going to end off the show with a few tunes. One by Northcote, Mechanical Hearts. I really love that tune. And Lucas Graham. You're not the only one. And then a really fun tune by Monty Python, Always Look On, The Bright Side of Life. And that's it for this week. And we'll see you next week. You've been tuned in to shifthappens.media on CJLYFM, Radio with a Heart. My name is Jeff. And I'm Anna. Shift Happens airs from 2 until 4 every Tuesday and also every Sunday from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on Kootenai Co-op Radio, CJLYFM. Podcasts of the show are also available on KootenaiCoopRadio.com and shifthappens.media. And if you aren't in our listening region, you can listen live on KootenyCoopRadio.com as well. Shift Happens, affecting positive change one shift at a time.